sleep I will kiss you in four places I'll go running along your street I'll squeeze the life out of you You will make me laugh and make me cry We will never forget it You will make me call your name And I'll shout into the blue summer sky Get started. You will throw your arms around me. Hey everybody, welcome back to the hustle. It's John Lamoureux. Okay, I have, we have not featured anyone from Down Under for a while and I feel bad because our Australian and Canadian listeners are among our most passionate. So this week I'm making up for it with a biggie. We've got Mark Seymour, former frontman for the great band Hunters and Collectors. If you guys don't know them, uh, you're in luck because they are one of the great Australian rock bands that have ever been. They, uh, you know, while bands, while their compatriots like Midnight Oil and In Excess and Mark's brother Nick, who is in Credit House, they go on to sort of global fame. Hunters, for whatever reason, remains this sort of only in Australia phenomenon. Well, in Europe too. They just didn't hit in the States and it's a shame because they should have. This song right here, in fact, might be their biggest hit, or at least the song you might know, Throw Your Arms Around Me, is still a gorgeous, beautiful anthem. And Mark wrote this. And in fact, he talks very eloquently in here about the burden of being the frontman and sole songwriter for a group as large as Hunter's. Because if someone in the group doesn't like the song, it doesn't get done. Well, that is a huge responsibility to carry with you wherever you go. So the band starts out as this sort of funky post-punk band but they over time his songwriting really comes to fruition and they put out albums like human frailty and fate and ghost nation and these things are incredible some of the best rock you're going to hear now if you're new to this band i would encourage you to check out they have one of the greatest live albums of all time called under one roof go give that a listen and tell me if you aren't converted to how great they are or if it's been a while since you listened to hunters do it. His solo stuff is equally as incredible. He put out a great solo album just a couple of years ago called Slow Dawn. I get one of the song titles wrong in here. It's pretty embarrassing. I couldn't read my own writing. He had to correct me. But anyway, so there's a lot of great Mark Seymour stuff out there for you to learn. I also wanted to know what it was like watching, you know, your brother and all these other bands that you know and have played the circuit with too, getting all this global fame. What's that like? That can't be easy. But anyway, Mark is practically Australian royalty and he deserves to be because he's one of the best there is. I hope you guys like this conversation as much as I did. Plus it kicks off with another only in Utah story. He called me from his home outside of Melbourne. So when I was getting ready to talk to you, I mean, I've been a fan for years and I've got all this stuff that I wanted to ask you about, but I'm poking around on your website and I see a picture, I see under the diary section, there's a picture of what looks like the pipe organ, the pipes of the Mormon oh, yeah. tabernacle. Yeah. I'm Mormon. I'm from Salt Lake City originally. 
And yeah. I, I click on this thinking, that can't actually be what I think it is, is it? And it's this whole journal entry, basically, of yours from, I don't even know when this was. You have to oh, tell so me long, why long. you were in Utah. <laughs> um, oh, look, that was... Uh... A revelation, uh, to kind of phrase, you know. Uh, <laughs> I actually found, um, I mean, I know this is uh, this is a bit of a sweeping statement, but the US got really interesting when I got to Utah. You know, it's like, oh, okay, there's, it, there's so much, you know, re- real-world mythology going on in that part of the world. Like all around that church, there are those plaques in the walls yep. and these big statements about, the human condition and God and, and like, I, I just thought, you know, I've come through these very big cities and spent a lot of time in Manhattan and, you know, and, you know, gasped at the scale of things, which you do, you know. Um, and then I got, I got out into that part of the world and I just, it sort of really distilled so much about, you know, I ended up writing a song called How the West Was Won. inspired by this visit well partly partly okay. it was yeah um i mean I, I just picked up on a lot of these signposts along the way but just the idea that that whole kind of that there's that immigration trail and the story of these handcart pioneers and then you and you're looking around and you're going why did they stop here you know like it's just it's just you know an incredibly intimidating place and the idea that people would go to those lengths to find sanctuary mm-hmm. just gives you some insight into the, how much turmoil and, well, presumably violence, um, mm-hmm. just how much civil strife there must have been in, in the early settler era in the United States, like just how people were pushing themselves further and further west. Mm-hmm. But it just really symbolised a lot of that energy that was inherent in the process of that country being settled from that northeastern corner. And I, I just found that really, it was so apocryphal and it really gave me an insight into so much about Australia and just the way all these frontier nations emerged. And um, it was like being away, I had to go a long way from home and not play music mm-hmm. and to actually get some grip on, you know, a long-term historical view of the way these countries like Australia actually kind of emerged, you know, as well. And so that immigration story is pretty powerful, yeah. When was this that you were there? I mean, I I couldn't get a read on the date of when this would have happened. It was just before Trump got voted out. 
Uh, and, and we actually we actually made the decision. And my partner and I, Joe, we were going to. Uh, we decided we wanted to travel overseas, and I didn't want to play music. Like I wanted to be able to just go, go away, and just be really anonymous and just travel as a tourist. And one of us came up with the idea of getting on an Amtrak and doing really? doing Amtrak while Trump was still the president, just to yeah. see how it felt. You know, like yeah. So it was fantastic. You know, like I, it was just a real insight and. One of the best things I've ever done, really. And That's the dream. I think, you know, it's interesting. We all think that the, the, the train industry is dying off, especially passenger trains, because you don't hear of anyone doing that. And you think, well, it must be so cheap or easy to get on a train and see the country. And you find out it's actually really expensive. And uh, it's kind of like a high-end uh But Amtrak, Amtrak's actually not... Relatively speaking, oh, it wasn't. Oh, good. Enough, it's a public. It's a public instrument, you know. And you think in America, like that, they don't have anything like that, you know. Yeah. But Amtrak, I mean, your Amtrak is cheaper than to do the same thing in Australia. It's really expensive. It's really more expensive. yeah. And going oh. across Canada, the same because they've uh-huh. commercialised those um, those particular instruments of transport. Yeah. Whereas in America, Amtrak is still pretty basic, you know. And oh. uh, but look, I, I have to sort of measure. Uh, Qualify my comment about Trump still being in office. I I really wanted to see how it felt to travel in a Western nation that has all of this rhetoric erupting and 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 all this media speculation and and here you know that Trump was just consuming so much news time and I really wanted to get in behind that and just mm-hmm. see how it felt to just be anonymous traveling in a country that had a guy like that. As the president, I mean, I mean, I had no idea whether or not he'd win or lose the next election, but sure. I just wanted to get some grip on st- just how it felt on the street. Wow! While all that rhetoric was still flying around the world, and the the, the great, incredible thing was that I was actually able to escape. You, when you're away from something and you're consuming news at third hand, just as it comes to you, or you know, through your computer or reading the paper and whatever, it just kind of forces you into this state of suspended animation. You don't really get to feel what the world is like anymore. I mean, I, I mean, I know what it's like to live here in Australia and just wander around the streets, but I've no idea about the United States. Yeah. And yet I, I just hear all this stuff about the United sure. States all the time, you know. Sure. And it was just a really good thing to do from that perspective, you know. I'm wondering um, what you learned because I can speak as not everyone is on the same side as me, but I can speak as somebody who was living through it. It was suffocating it was so uh, oppressive feeling as angry and as helpless as i felt during those four years of what was going on not everyone agrees with me on that but uh thankfully enough did to get the guy out of office that's my own personal opinion what was your what did what were your findings well look i think you probably just had it was it was similar i mean it, okay. he just sucked up all the attention yeah you yeah. constantly i mean there's a lot of really important things going on in australia for the last three or four years i mean we're living in a, an incredibly well obviously now because of covid but but back then i mean it was there was just a lot lot of action here you know which i take a lot of interest in but but i just would always be going clicking on trump you see trump somewhere go to that read that and you, yeah. you always had this feeling of there was this hiatus you know and the world was about to fall apart and it's like when you watch, when you meet narcissists, <laughs> you know, in everyday life. You've probably life, met a few in your life. <laughs> well, 
I've become a student of the whole thing. You know, someone can just kind of somehow maneuver a dog in a in mixed company so that you end up kind of talking about them. And it's just how he managed to do that on a on a global scale. It and the media fell for it. Everything yeah. just kind of moved in around him. And so I just find that. I mean, everyone would use words like scary and it's so dangerous and, oh, this could happen and that could happen and the other thing. And then the more I sort of read up on that idea of that kind of personal persona, the more I realised actually it's actually really simple, you know. It's just the people have, some people just have this uncanny ability to manip- <laughs> manipulate dialogue so that you yeah. end up talking about them for some yeah. reason, you know. And yeah. We still are. Every day, but yeah. yeah. We still know. are. I mean, he's not, you know, he's been banned from social media. Oh, you are. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah, but we still talk about him because his, the chemtrails of his, of his, you know, yeah, reign yeah. are still out there influencing everybody and giving rise to all these people that want to, you know, follow in that wake. It's frightening. But see, that's why I'm wondering if you're riding on an Amtrak around the country with no music, keeping to yourself. Are you feeling a sense of peace or are you finding, are you sensing this tension everywhere you go? Well, that's the thing, you know, like especially Amtrak, you just meet really lovely anonymous people who are just, is this their, how many times you've done the Empire Builder? You know, this is my first time, you know. Are you enjoying the sunrise over, um, you know, Uma? Yuma yeah. and yeah. Buffalo. Oh, are they Buffalo? You know, <laughs> it's just, it was fantastic. And look, we met, the, for some reason, the train had all these Amish in it. Like at the beginning, there's all these Amish. They all climb on, yeah. You know, and they're really? all wandering up and down the train and I get to meet all these people. And then we stopped in Glenwood Springs, <laughs> right up in the mountains, and there's all yeah. these Amish boys. Like these boys are just doing, you know, and they, they've got their full kid on, you know. Yeah. And they're absolutely gobsmacked. They're just wandering around these kids, 19, 20-year-old boys. There's about five of them that I kept running into in Glenwood Springs. How are you now? And, <laughs> and they're just staring like they've just never seen any. And I just found that wow. incredible. You know, like wow. you're in this highly developed Western demo- yeah. democracy and economy and these yeah. kids are walking around like that who just have never left their backyards. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That's a revelation. I mean, it's like... I would never have seen that if I hadn't made that choice. But see, the thing as well is I think if you stay in the game, in the music game, as long as I have, you sort of you reach a point where you're just trying to get out of it. You know, like not, I'm quite happy to continue what I'm doing, writing and performing, but I just look at a lot of my peers now of my age in Australia, like famous artists, mm-hmm. and they're just, it's like a turkey shoot. You know, they're so caught up in their careers and they're, they're kind of, in, they're sort of entombed by the, uh, the the constant competitiveness and the need to stay on top and 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 stay in the public eye and be and be present and, and aware of what the media is saying about them and and it's just boring, man. Yeah. <laughs> so, so Are you? It, yeah. So let me interject here because my assumption is that people do that or react that way. I interview hundreds of them here for the show. Because that's their livelihood. But are you yeah. in a position where, and I don't, I mean, forgive us and Americans for not, we never fully embraced hunters and collectors like we should have, but are you enough of royalty down there that you can take that, 
you can take a breath. You can relax and sit back and do music as you want. You don't have to compete. Uh, it's a really good question because I actually think it's in my, in probably true. That is probably right. But I've had to actually kind of go, you know what? I can give myself permission to make music that I want to make. But I look back on my career and go, well, actually, that's what I was doing the whole time. It's just that Seems I like it. parallel rhetoric, the dialogue in my brain going, oh, hang on, am I cutting it or am I not cutting it? Is this good enough or not good enough? And that kind of critical voice, I mean, critical voice is really important. It's yeah. definitely important. When you pick the guitar up and you just start recording things, I mean, my critical voice is pretty, you know, it's going hard. But there's another one that sits in there that is actually about speculating about how you're perceived mm. and that I reckon you've got to let that go mm. because otherwise you stop writing about your condition and mm. when I look back I remember when this happened for you know the last three or four years why did I do it in the beginning what was the very first thing that I did and what was my state of mind I remember it vividly you know Oh, I just wanted to have a go. Yeah. That's the only reason. Yeah. I just wanted to have a crack at it, you know. And yeah. you know, I'm looking at some of the kids back in that era in the late 70s, early 80s in Melbourne and getting up on stage and playing guitar. And and I remember that's that's what they were thinking. Yeah. And that somehow or another, various people have just gradually fallen off the perch or they've just they've they've, they've become disheartened or they've died or they've taken drug too many drugs or whatever. And mm -hmm. but the thing is, really you can also just talk yourself out of it Yeah. over time. You just go, well, is it, is, is it worth the effort? Yeah. And the only way you can kind of keep coming back to the, the root driving trigger that makes you want to create things is to remind yourself of what it, the specific psychic state you need to be in to get it done. And those sorts of rhetorical conversations, speculative about how you perceive they can really kill you as an artist, mm -hmm. you know. You can just get to a point where you go, I really don't want to be thinking about this anymore and the right. only way I can stop it from happening is to just stop making music. And, you know. So let me so ask you kind of a hard question. Getting through that, you know. Like, sure. Let me ask you kind of a hard question because when I was getting ready to talk to you, of course, you know, one of the obvious questions from somebody who's watched your career lovingly but from afar is, well, why not more hunters and collectors? What's going on? Why does he have to go solo or whatever? Uh, if there's no infighting, what's the problem? And getting ready to talk to you, I read something. I don't even remember where it was. That you were saying, you said somewhere, and I don't know if I'm attaching too much meaning to this or, or not, that you were finding it difficult to write songs for such a large group, for such a big group of people. And when I listen to your solo stuff, especially the new album, Slow Dawn, which is great, by the way, it feels like your solo career or undertow or whatever has been a reaction to that. Like, I don't have to write for a band with horns in it anymore. I can do what I can scale it all the way back and have it. It could just be me and an acoustic guitar if I want. And so I yes. wonder if that, when you talk about this, you know, following the vision and being free and taking yourself back to what the initial germ of the idea was or the inspiration, are you, is that what motivates you these days to make the kind of music that you make? This kind of less big, more intimate sounding rock and roll? Well, it's just 
so many, you know, there's just so many issues that in just what you've just asked me. It's like, really? <laughs> I mean, I'd, I'd, like to, I'd like to be able to say, and at any given point in time in the last few years, I mean, I think about that all the time, mm-hmm. you know, because I'm always aware, oh, okay, I did that then and I, and I made that record then and I was in that, in that room and I was talking to that guy and he said that to me. And it's like, for me, it's like it's right in the present. All of that experience is in the very immediate present. Now, you've asked me the question and I, I, there are no simple answers to that. Yeah, sure, you're right to say mass brass section, very symphonic, Mahler-esque powerful, solid, mm-hmm. you know, just so epic sounding. And then you've got this bass player who just absolutely smashes the guitar. Like he's he's he creates this sound that is so powerful. And you go, well, why not? You know, <laughs> because it's it's so overwhelming. Yeah. It's just, you know, I got to a point where, and look, I've thought about, there's so many other peripheral issues about, you know, these personalities and this copyright structure and there's so many issues that I ended up having with the band that I gave up even bringing up in the end because I just I just sounded like this squeaky wheel and got told to shut up, mm. you know. And and then the band just took over. Like the last couple of albums, I'd, I'd just be out, I've told the story to many people, I'd be out at the coffee machine just standing there listening to the band jamming and I'd listen to it and go, why, oh, it sounds really good. Shit, that's fantastic. Wow. Just sounds fantastic, and then I go, "What am I going to write about?" <laughs> I have to write something that complements everything I'm hearing right now. Yeah, the pressure's on. It's going to yeah. make it sound like it's about something, and it's yeah. just a bunch of guys in a room playing fantastic rock music. And yeah. I had that conversation, and I never actually told them. You know, I just think if I just go in and say that now, they're just going to go, you know, they'll just say, "Shut up!" You know, just join in, which is what I did. Right. Right. I did right. join in. I joined in. I did, I did exactly what I thought was expected of me. And, you know, we made two albums like that and they kind of, they were commercial. They just mm. went away. You know, we did that and then, you know, we're hitting the glass ceiling. I mean, I did cooperate. It's just that in the end, over in the fullness of time, in the years that followed, I realised, you know, I just had to ask some fundamental questions about what am I trying to say? What is my identity as an artist? What are the stories that I want to tell, you know, over a long period of time? And then so the sound of the, I mean, look, I've got an infinitely more freedom now than I had, and that's, that's I'll, never, I'll never go back to it. I just couldn't go back to that now. And that's, really? that's the answer. I just couldn't go back. It would be, be too hard. I, just, I would feel like I'd really sold myself for me to go back and work and write with that group now would be like, and I'm putting it right on the line here, uh-huh. I would feel like I'd be totally disrespecting myself to really? do that. Really? Yeah. And we should clarify, uh, I don't know, there's not hard feelings, are there? Hunters and collectors like didn't explode out of anger or dysfunction, did they? Oh, I don't know. No, it didn't. And, and the guys, you know, we're going off on this tour, you know, Imminently, we're going. Yeah. We're doing a sort of a nostalgia thing. Um, Good. Well, you know, and it's fine, you know. Good. But no one, it's it just doesn't come up. It's okay. just not, you know, the idea that why don't we make more records? It's, I mean, someone might mention it late in the evening over a, a beer, and you know, I uh-huh. just don't answer the question. It's like, it's just generally agreed that that's not what we're doing anymore, and that's yeah. as far as the conversation. And everyone's fine. fine. Okay. 
That's good to know. So I want to ask you about a couple of songs off of the, I know it came out a year ago, but Slow Dawn, because to me, they, they summarize some of the things you're saying on here. For one, Applewood Road, to me, sounds a lot like something that hunters and collectors would have killed back in the day. Slick operation West in the desert Where the great Silverado Is rusting in the sun Religion in the water Sky with no mercy The judgment of strangers And the kingdom to come The people who live there the dark highway as the strangers go by buffalo and nervous in the stockyards of humor in the shade of the apple woods a good place to die and the skies and the water was set to explode the cops pulled us over the black eagle crowed That feels like the old Mark Seymour would have just done so well. They would have performed oh, yeah. a song like Applewood Road just perfectly, you know? And um, when I listen to that song, I think... I'll give you a good example. Okay, just there's something's just leaped please. into my mind. I mean, I wrote that lyric, you know, and I, I was just a, it's a 6-8 and it's got a three-chord cycle and a slight shift into the chorus. I pretty much, I wrote it here, you know, just dun, 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 and the riff, I didn't write the riff. That came from a, a lovely gentleman named Dorian West. But the general structure of it is that it's a, it's a kind of a talking ballad and it's just this revolving lyric and it's describing this journey and it's very critical and it's ironic and dark and all of those things. Now, there were times in the band's life when I could have walked into the room with something complete like that uh-huh. and I would have been told no. Really? And I wouldn't know why. Yeah. I just go, no, we're not doing that now. We're doing, what are we doing? You know, uh, it'd be like, there were so many random discrete events over an 18 year period when the goalposts would just get moved. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and that's the best way I can summarize it. Sometimes it was okay. I managed to do throw your arms around me. Yeah. The band were okay with that. Yeah. And then there were other times when someone would say to me, no, you can't come in here with complete songs. And I go, well, why? What, why, what, you know, and then go, oh, okay, I'm stifling the band's creativity. Fair enough. I won't do that. But it kind of, when you look at the full array of however many albums the band made and you look at the stylistic shifts that went down and the production styles that were so different from one record to the next, you sort of look at that and you go, how did that happen? Yes. How, How could that, how could a band survive for that long and just make these completely sweeping changes you know when you look at groups that and i look honestly i don't really have a definite answer about that but i look at that myself personally mark seymour as a singer songwriter and i go well i just think that's dysfunctional i just think what you do is you progress and you develop a you develop an idea over time and you get better at doing it that makes sense 
Yes, it does. <laughs> and you, it, so I had a, I have a ton of questions about the exact thing you're talking about right here, because to me, there is a very pointed progression going on in hundreds of collectors. I mean, everything you, when you start out with a song like Talking to a Stranger, And it sounds to me like that post-punk kind of stuff that bands like Liquid Liquid. Uh, there's an obvious. Everything I read is an obvious Can influence. Can was everything. That's what you wanted to do. So there's this kind of post-punk funk thing going on. And then by human frailty, you become more of a so- more songwriters. These become more structured, you know, verse chorus. The epic nature that becomes the standard of hunters and collectors comes in and never quite goes away. And then. After that, the, the the albums have maybe a different overall vibe, but I see an absolute path of progression there. Do you not? Or maybe it felt different to you in the moment. Did well, it feel like all like chaos? Because okay, to me, it feels like progress. Oh no, no, I'm not. I'm not saying it's chaotic. Oh, okay. I mean, it, was, it was highly organized. Mm. But from the point of view of being the the main songwriter, the guy that's com- coming up with the the, the words that tie the whole thing together, Yeah, I look back on that now and I go, well, why was it I was told in 1982 that I couldn't bring complete songs into the, into the studio, into the rehearsal room, because it would, in, it would inhibit the band's creativity? And then in 1986 I was allowed to bring in Throw Your Arms Around Me. I mean, the thing about human frailty is that it's, I mean, I had control. You know, I was able to come in and go, oh, wave arms around and get, yeah. oh, do this, and then so go, here's a line to, you know. So any songwriter will tell you, know, that is, immerses themselves. It's a, an, a, admittedly, it's an immersive activity. You know, you walk into a room, there's a whole lot of guys, girls, whatever, with their instruments, uh-huh. and they're all poised, ready to do something, and somebody's got to get the thing going. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And yeah. I can only speak from that's, I mean, I hate to use the expression, my truth. Yeah. But I can only really speak from that point of view. And I I just eventually, as the, in answer to your earliest possible question, <laughs> it may appear to be orderly and, and seem, make sense to an outsider, but I'm looking at it from the perspective of like 40 years mm. and, and I sort of go, well, I, I couldn't operate like that anymore. I just mm. couldn't go into a room and abandon... <laughs> Mm-hmm. Abandon control completely. I mean, I'm willing to. I'm willing to negotiate ground because you know it's good to have 
you know, people need to be, I am totally subscribed to the view that people need to be engaged and feel that they're contributing something, but to not know, like to, to have things just disintegrate because someone just doesn't want to play that line or, you know, it's just this random kind of strangeness that would happen very period- periodically and without you having any way of knowing if it was going to happen, like it's the, un- the unpredictable nature of it. Yeah. But, you know, the irony of it is that, Hunters, hunters and collectors really thought that was a valuable thing, like the idea that we were different and strange and really difficult to deal with and record companies, oh, they're so maverick and independent. You know, <laughs> it's like, great, but, you know, in the end, it all just, it all just came to an end, man. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. And I look at that and go, I mean, I cried over it. I've been, I was incredibly heartbroken, yeah. you know. Yeah. And, and, you know, that's the thing, like, with all of the effort involved, I don't want to go through that again. Yeah. You know, yeah. I'm too old. <laughs> yeah, I believe it. You, you've yeah. earned the right to be the, the artist that you want to be and have your own creative freedom at this point. And, and like as to, great a band as they started. were, but you don't have to answer to all of them anymore. Well, the thing is when I, with Slow Dawn, I mean, we went through this process where, you know, it's just fun. We random rehearsal rooms around Melbourne. Oh, well, let's go out and play in Hallam tonight. We'll meet in Hallam and, and I would have this set of chords and I would do that in Hallam and then might wander across the other side of the creek, you know, a, a month later in Yarraville and we'll have a little go there. And mm. it was just this sense of, I mean, that's, they would go, you know, you'd, you'd come up with something and then you'd record it. I mean, admittedly, digital recording's just been fantastic. I mean, the idea of just recording, putting a machine on a, on a desktop and just the band just playing and you hear it back in your computer like, the next that night, you go, gee, that sounds right. incredible. Right, you know? right. And but but the thing is, they these guys just have this uncanny ability to sniff out bullshit. They just go, uh, it's all right. Uh, but and if you're getting if you're getting that, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, that's probably right. You know, yeah, yeah, <laughs> probably what it is. So, yeah, so I, can I see just that. I, it's a pretty consistent playing field is relatively level, and I kind of. Even though things don't necessarily work well all the time, it's still I still kind of know that this I can predict the outcomes much better, you know, and 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 it's just that means the quality of the work just gets I can go okay that's a rabbit hole I'm not going down yeah and like I went into the studio with this record and I pretty much had all the lyrics were written I went to the, the producer said here's the words and he's going it was this dude Nick Dedia he's he's ex um, he's a he's a ex US uh huh. Uh-huh. And he goes, uh, something like, uh, I never had anyone coming. Just, I just had them on age four sheets, you know, like here uh-huh. it is. You know, so you know what the words are. Oh, right. I, know, I don't know if I even read them after that. But, <laughs> um, but, you know, I really have a high level of, I just think that that's, it, songs are, can be really powerful statements and you really have to respect the process like the lyric, the story, the shape of the song, like where the psychology of the song is, is there is a hierarchy. Yeah. You know, it, there is a hierarchy. The lyric is the most important thing in the song. Yeah. I mean, in Hunters, I don't know. I, the jury's out on that. Because it was, you know, it was very egalitarian. And, like, I, I, wouldn't, I couldn't honestly say that that was true that the lyric was the most important wow. thing. Wow. I have so. some questions about specific songs that have lyrics or lyrical moments, at least, that really 
have always moved me. One other song, though, that I want to ask about on Slow Dawn is Demon Run. Bring up the bodies, the bitter and the sweet. We've been down here in a hole too long, drinking nectar There comes a time when you cross the line, swallowed by the dark. Beware the demon rum, my friend. It eats into your heart. We jam the wind across the sea to this godforsaken shore. Staggered up that lonely beach and cried out, give me more. And crashed out beneath the southern stars and felt the angry spark. Beware the demon rum, my friend. It eats into your heart. The demon rum, the demon rum. It's a hell of a cross to bear, my friend. Beware the demon rum. We dreamed the muddy river. Set fire. Because that to me sounds like you at your most Springsteenian. And again, the, the, the kind of to me a little bit, not not in a. I mean, I hope that that's a compliment. That's not me saying Mark oh, yeah, yeah, Seymour yeah, no, trying no, to be Springsteen. I, I love so, But anyone who sings so nakedly about the kinds of issues that you do and Springsteen does are going to get kind of compared in some ways to each other. That sounds like a song that you probably had to, could have only done on your own. Talking about the difference between a song that is yours that could have also counted as a hunters and collectors song and one that had to be uniquely yours. When I hear a song like demon run, that's what that makes me think of. Mark could not have done this song. Had he still been in a band, he had to do it his own way. Maybe I'm mm. reading too much into it. Well, I, no, not necessarily. I, but, but the interesting thing is about that song and it's demon rum, by the way, R U M, which was, I the, guess. Sorry, it doesn't matter. Yes. It just makes it right. No, it is. Um, and that rum was the coin of the realm in the first um, convict settlement in Sydney. Like they actually traded in rum. That's how they didn't have money. Uh -huh. like there was no, it was no cash economy. So they used rum as a, a means of doing business transactions, which you nice. can imagine how that worked. But I've always had this feeling. I, I remember there was a, and this goes back to early hunters and collectors. It, there was a famous film made in the late 70s in Australia called Wake in Fright. And it's, you can, it's, it's, a, it's, it's turned into this cult film and it's about this uh, young English teacher who has, gets seconded, gets sent out to a remote regional town somewhere in Western New South Wales to, um, to he's got a, he's on a bond. So he has to teach in this town and he's, you know, I won't spoil the story. It's definitely worth watching. Yeah. Um, but his life comes unstuck because he he just gets caught up in gambling and alcohol in a really short period of time. He's desperate to get out of the town, uh -huh. and he, he wants so he thinks I can pay the bond back by getting into a two-up game, and he loses and, and it all goes pear-shaped, right? <laughs> but the one underlying theme in the 
in this is the relationship between mateship and alcohol. Mm. And and there's this recurring phrase that keeps coming up as he's as he's, he's it's like the rake's progress. He just becomes more and more fucked up, you know. Yeah, yeah. In a really short period of time, as you won't drink with me, you bastard. What's wrong with you? You won't drink with me. And he goes, I'm not drinking. And he's just retreating away from the, the, the sheer kind of catastrophe of alcohol, you know. Uh-huh. And, and that I reckon in our country, and admittedly, um, we probably inherited, we've inherited it from Britain and Ireland. And But I think booze is, I mean, I like drinking, you know. I have no, I don't hesitate to drink, but, but. There's this leveling culture that that people who like to drink, especially men, mm-hmm. have deployed to pull each other down. So things get, you know, in, in endeavor, entrepreneurship, all sorts of you know human drive that mm-hmm. has to occur despite that yes. kind of ball and chain. So. Although a lot of the images in the song are kind of connected with early convict settlement, mm. um, how people, how especially Irish settlement, and how they actually tried to kind of overcome the suffering and the constraints that were put on them, and their solace is booze, mm. you know, and that's mm-hmm. the song just keeps coming back to that, you know. Um, that anyway, is so interesting. Connected with that film, Wake and Fright, which okay, you know, I'm going to listen yeah. to it again with new eyes. I'm not much of a lyrics person, as you could probably tell, so I don't. I uh, miss the point of some songs. I just know that I like the way they make me feel. Speaking of the way songs make me feel, especially songs of yours, one of the best moments in any song ever is in when the river runs dry and you yell salvation. I'm almost getting choked up thinking about it. Every time I play that song in the car, I can't help but at least lifting a fist whenever you yell salvation, if not yelling at myself, you know? It's impossible to sit still. And I'm wondering, when you were created that song, if that was a conscious choice, if you thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make people just raise a fist to salvation yeah. right here. Yeah. Yeah. It's very perverse. Uh, it's very perverse. Well, I mean, the thing about that whole era was hunters and collectors were, and it's it's gone like that. The whole, not the band, the social context. Those sorts of shows don't happen in Australia anymore, and they were part of this tradition of pub culture that reached this sort of critical mass. It was like the rooms were, you know, they might hold anything from eight hundred to three and a half thousand people. And, you know, you'd go up to uh, stay in a hotel in Sydney mm-hmm. 
and you'd you'd be there for two to three weeks and you'd use it as your base and you'd just go out and you'd feed the suburbs, yeah. you know, of Sydney and the those were where those – I mean, they were elsewhere in Australia as well, but Sydney was, you know, they've got these licensing laws that enable those community clubs to, to really expand and they got bigger and bigger and bigger and the band's reputation as a live group basically unfolded on the back of that growth mm-hmm. of those venues and – so you would be in front of people, and so you know what? Look, the music, so much of the band's sound evolved in response to that musical theatrical context. That of actually makes so much sense, and yes. that was part of it, you know. Yes. And but the interesting thing about songs like River now, I mean, I do it. I, I that song, I I still do because it's it's just got it's really current, you know. It's got a big enough story that it it's just covered time. It's it's kept ahead of the game, you know. And I mean, there's a bunch of those songs that that's oh yeah, I, I recognised that I still do, you know. Yeah. But I do I do river like sometimes I do it like really sad. Really. Just do it huh. small and and yeah. salvation will rain on you one one time because it's kind of sad. It's it's like you're saying you're just really hoping that's true. Yeah. Yes. You know? That is it. That's why you raise that fist. That's so interesting. I'm just imagining a, a pub full of guys drinking Fosters and hoisting it salvation every time you see. Oh, I love that visual. That is great. Speaking of speaking of lyrics of yours that have sort of taken on a life of their own, say goodbye. You don't make me feel like a woman anymore. That's a line that, I mean, you guys, you have a lot of live albums and whenever now a song like that appears on the album, the crowd is just yelling right back at you. When you wrote a song like that, did you know, no one knows, did you have an inkling or like the salvation part, were you including this as a way to really hook people and have them participate in this song and in this moment with you? Yeah. You did. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Genius. Men particularly. I, I really wanted men to sing that line, you know, so that uh-huh. they would be singing as a woman. There was this whole story going around. I mean, it, just the, the idea hunters were really masculine and, you know, it was dominated by men. And, look, it was a very vigorous, you know, robust audience. Yeah. But, look, I just, and I just said, yeah, but there's women down the front. You know, I can see them. They're down the front. Look, look, this. You know, I'd go out and, the, you know, right. you know, playing at Selena's. I'd go, there's women there. There's definitely women there. They're looking at me. There's women looking at me, you know, like 
So I, I knew that wasn't true. It's just, uh-huh. it's just one of those weird cultural tropes where, look, in the end, what killed it was fire regulations, mm. you know, health and safety, uh-huh. and, and with good reason. I mean, it was pretty friggin' dangerous, you know, yeah. just public liability insurance, you know, like you, you just wouldn't do that now. Yeah. Like yeah. put 3,000 people in a room that only really hold, can only safely hold 1,500, and they're all standing together yeah. and they're all, right. you know, and right. just kind of liking it. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember thinking at one point, I wouldn't want to do that. Uh, no, no. <laughs> you know, I wouldn't want no, to do that. And I'd absolutely. be on stage performing to them and going, I really wouldn't want to be down there, you know. But but the idea of trying to undermine that idea of that that men were dominating the experience because of their physical strength and the, the fact that they were just robust. I mean, we really came down hard on moshing. And, and I, I have to say, moshing definitely affected my perception of the band's future as well. Like I really? once, started, once it started to get popular, um, was, I remember it kind of it kind of really took hold when the big day out festival started to come up. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, you know, it's just getting it's getting indulgent. And I would have these outbursts which <laughs> were, you know, not yeah. just to try and keep that stuff under control. But right. You know, a lot of the songs in that time were written around the idea of eliciting a particular response. Sure, sure. Well, they have to be. I, I'm just, I never, of course, got to see Hunters and Collectors at their peak live ever, but I can just imagine being in a room hearing those songs and how just transforming it must have felt. They're so epic. Speaking of which, I got to ask you a couple of specific Australia questions. I went to New yes. Zealand once back in college. And, uh, but that's it. I've never been to Australia. So in Blind Eye, when you sing Let Sleeping Dogs Lie Down in Queensway, what's Queensway? Where is that? Is that a place? What is that? Queensway, it's just a street in West London. Oh, oh okay. Okay. I thought there was some, like, outback visualization. No, not at all. No, you know, Queensway is, yeah, no, we were in London and I'd broken up with this girl who I later married. <laughs> um, uh, and I was heartbroken, basically, really. I didn't really, I, I kind of didn't know, I didn't really understand what I was going through. I was incredibly, still really young. Uh-huh. And... We were, we were there for a few weeks. I think 
when would that have been? Because that album was recorded in 89. Yeah, Ghost Nations 89. So that song, I don't know. And we were touring with, we were doing a tour with another group, another Australian band, I think. Midnight Oil? No, that was later. Okay. I, we were back in London. And I remember when the band first went to London in 1981 and we just languished, you know, it just, it didn't, the band did not thrive in that environment. We needed to play. We needed to perform and the band wasn't performing. We, we couldn't get, couldn't get Virgin to agree to the idea of just the band going out and just playing its songs because they wanted to short circuit the process. They, and look, and I look back on that now and I go, they were right. They were dead right. And we needed to make a record. We made a mistake. Our reaction was to be punk, mm-hmm. you know, to go, you know, like that. Yeah. And I, that was the wrong thing to do. Yeah. Okay. You know, so. Interesting. Uh, so, but getting back there again, that that so many years later, oh, well, it wasn't that long. It just seemed like a long time when because I was young. But mm-hmm. God, London, you know, it's just a one of my one of my mates called it. I mean, look, it's got all that history, and it's sure it, it does have its good side. Us have to have a lot of money to survive there, and um, I just I wasn't happy. <laughs> that was the, that was the album. That was the song. Yeah, I could imagine. So, were were there? I don't know. Were there efforts to break you guys in the States? Did you ever go on like headlining tours around America back in the glory days? Human frailty was probably the most, well, I think it was the most successful album we had in the US. And we we were signed to um, to IRS Mm -hmm. in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. And we did two albums with them. That was the first one. And we did a college tour. Uh, yeah. That's that's about as most effective as this band got. I mean, many years later, we did a Midnight All tour, right? With uh, and that was with um, Post Cut, I think. Oh no, that no, might have been Ghost Nation. That might have been Ghost Nation. I think I it was. It. Yeah, because because I remember the artwork. But I, I actually think that the band at that point, if we'd stayed in America and and made another album in the United States, we would have. I reckon we had, we were in with the show. We would have probably, but see, how many times do you heard those stories? You know, it's like, you know, the rock. Well, parrot. that's how We've you play that. the game. Yeah, I, that's how you play the game. I so what? It's interesting. About three weeks ago, on the podcast Facebook page, I'll sometimes post links to songs that I love that we just don't hear very often anymore. And I was, I was on a big hunters and collectors kick a couple of weeks ago, re-listening to all of the stuff, just loving it. And I posted the video to Do You See What I See? Thank you.
I'm always curious what people, what are your thoughts, your memories, your complaints? What do you remember of this song? And we had a few people reply on there. Oh yeah, I saw these guys open for Midnight Oil in 1990 and uh, they were great. And I, that's when I reached back out to you and I thought, well, I'm going to try this one more time. Was, do you see what I see? Was that a, is that, would that have been the song that might have broken you guys in the States on the college radio back in the day? What would it have been? See, the problem, you know, it's such a can of worms. I mean, there's so many, I mean, there are so many unanswered questions about the band's approach to recording that we never were able to distill the power we had as a musical, just the force, the musical force of the band. We just didn't seem to know how to express that in in recorded form, like how to actually, even, even if you did it through some sort of, kind of artifice where you approximated some aspects of the band's sound and exaggerated others. We are always hamstrung by the, the need to be even and fair to everybody in the band, you know, so that things just ended up sounding kind of, and do you see what I see? When I listen to that recording now and I go, it just sounds lame to me. Because oh, really? Oh. Everything's, everything's just there. I mean, you could have made that song sound much more. I mean, look, but then, you know, someone had to make these decisions. Uh-huh. So, there's, no, there's no finger of blame here. You know, it's, it's just that it could have sounded a lot better. Mm. You know, if they'd been, perhaps if it had been mixed differently or, I mean, there's some, I've got so many issues with it. It's like it's too quick. Oh, wow. The snare's too loud. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, but... As a song, uh-huh. it's it's a great song. I mean, I, yeah. I play that song, and I, I, I do it. Obviously, I don't do it anything like that anymore. But uh-huh. um, <laughs> I can't, you know, because yeah. it's just different people. But I wouldn't have picked that. I would have picked human frailty. Something off human frailty. Mm. If it was if we were going to break through, because you know the thing about the college. There was a real groundswell there. You know, we played like in the northeast in Boston, in Atlanta, Georgia, you know, uh, Texas, Austin. You know, there were these hot spots that, I mean, actually things were starting to cook, you know. Mm-hmm. But as I said, I think really at the end of the day, especially after the English experience, if we'd stayed in America and and just kept the kept the momentum going, like what NXS did, I think the band would have broken through because then we would have been able to have construction with each other as a band in a context of what that market was, what the expectations of that market were. Yeah. Bearing in mind that we could get on stage and play to play to young kids and they could go, yeah, this is great, man, you know, and then just have that whole immediate connection with people after the show or, you know, like just, and the problem is that we'd make these records and then we'd just bugger off back to Australia yep. and then, Kind of, there's no. Yep. You know, it's a that, mystery. That's I, right. Yeah, I. Um, I was going to say this to the end, but I discovered. Well, there's two ways of discovering for me hunters and collectors. The biggest one was about 15, 16, 17 years ago. I'm in Salt Lake City for Christmas, where we go pretty much every year to visit family, and there's a uh, prominent was a prominent alternative music record store there. 
And I, on our way out of town, I felt like hitting it real quick to buy a CD that I could listen to in the car on the drive back to Denver because it's about eight hours. And I'm Jeez, poking around the store. I'm poking around the store and the cover and fate, the cover oh, yeah. is sitting there. Yeah. And I thought, you know, I've always heard of this band, but I don't know if I actually know them. But I think I would like them because I love bands like The Alarm and Big Country and Midnight Oil and all these bands that I know you're similar to. I bought Fate, and I that's one of my favorite albums of all time. It's still to this day, every song on it is a masterpiece to me. So um, now, having said that, the other way that I, I, I actually first discovered you before I knew it, I shouldn't admit this, but back when Napster was a really big thing, and I got kind of sucked into it. I'm a huge Neil Finn fan in Credit House. And um, I'm going on Napster and I'm downloading every like bootleg weird cover song that I can find. And I see that he does. He often does these versions of a song called Throw Your Arms Around Me. And it's beautiful. It is so lovely. And I think, who wrote this song? And then I see M. Seymour. I think, well, that must be a typo. Nick Seymour must have. It's an N. Seymour, not an M. Seymour. And uh, <laughs> eventually one night on like, you know, a classic VH1 classic, the video comes up and it, I, I realized the connection that you two are brothers and all that, you know, once the internet becomes a thing, I can look all this up. So having said, that's a long preamble to tell you that we have Patreon supporters and I always throw it out to them to find out, uh, to tell them who I'm interviewing and if they want to contribute questions, they can. One of them from Kevin Wench, he discovered you through throw your arms around me as well. He knows that that was, he heard the Neil Finn, Finn cover as well. His question was, what is your favorite cover of one of your songs? Sorry, that was a long way of explaining that, of getting to that question. Look, the only cover I can think of, it's throw your arms around me, is the only one that gets covered, really. Really? Like on a basis. I mean, there may well be others. Your kids, kids do Holy Grail and, mm. you know, you, you hear that occasionally. On, uh, it's, but, Throw Your Arms Around Me, it's been covered by quite a few people. I mean, you know, what's his name? Eddie Vedder has done it. Mm -hmm. um, Neil. Probably Neil. Okay. Actually, probably Neil. Um, there's, there's an Irish guy that does it, Luca Bloom. Oh, sure. Mm -hmm. He does it. I think I, I, think I probably like Neil's because Neil's just got this beautiful tenor. You know, he can just he's – he's got a very expressive – voice it just has a lot of soul and tone mm -hmm. and it's oddly it's not actually an easy song to sing it's quite well, I, I can imagine i can imagine it's got this really weird kind of wobbly chorus where you're, you're going through you're singing you're riffing on oh uh -huh. you know for a long time yeah yeah <laughs> and, and at what point does that land on the chord and 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 they all, everybody kind of gets that they don't get it wrong they just have a way of doing it which uh -huh. And I just go, oh, they did it like that. That's strange. Uh -huh. Anyway. That's Neil, interesting. Okay. Because I think about that song sometimes, and it's it feels like a traditional love song, but it's not lyrically a traditional love song at all. It's got a, such a unique perspective, squeezing the life out of you and kiss you in all these places and stuff like that. What inspired this song? And like I was saying earlier, it comes at a time when you guys, to my ears, are still heavily in influenced by Cam. And in that kind of post-punk world. And here's this gorgeous little ballad that comes out of all of that. Well, it was a real breakthrough for me because I it, it, it was 
I mean, I took the opportunity with that album, like because I realised I had a platform then. I mean, prior to Human Frailty, the band had sort of was drifting away from that whole can jam thing, and uh-huh. um, and it didn't, that smooth away didn't really happen quickly. It was just, and look, to be perfectly honest, I'm not sure that the guys in the band really kind of were into can. It was just sort of like this, uh-huh. you know, industrial funk jamming. You know, there was that the Jar Wobble album, which I loved that Jar Wobble album. And I really I really liked the Metal Box record. I really liked Public Image's Metal Box album, mm-hmm. which had him on it. Mm-hmm. And so there was a lot of other music around in Europe at the time that was very successful that that Can had influenced. And a lot and I I, I was kind of more into a lot Can I were a really good band, but I'd never really connected with Can directly. Like it was a lot. It had a lot to do with Greg Piranha. Greg Greg tuned into them pretty heavily, but I, over time I just realised it's not the kind of music I actually want to do. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and it wasn't until I heard early Van Morrison that mm-hmm. I, I started going, "Oh, this is great. What's this stuff?" You know, and lighten the piece. You know, like yeah. I mean, my musical education was. I've always come to things really slowly, you know. I, yeah. I just digest things. Songs, music kind of says, speaks to me quite laterally, you know. Like I'll pick up on lyrical content and the tone of someone's voice. Uh, someone who you might really respect and think is really, you know, a great, great songwriter and I'll just go, oh, yeah, mm. you know. Really? What's his voice doing? What's her voice doing? Do I like that voice? No, no, not really, even though they're really good, you know, like, you know, they're really talented and special, but, you know, what's the voice sound like? I mean, I know that sounds quite shallow, but. I'm the same way. A voice can ruin everything for me. There are lots of bands. That's the first port of call, you know, that's that's, that's your entree into the landscape, you know, what that human being is doing, you know, they're standing there on the hilltop going, "Ah," you know, Uh and is that, that's, do I relate to that or not? You know, it's just, just a human sound, you know. Right. But. It was them again, Sad Eyes. There's a song called Sad Eyes, and it's sort right. of 60s, Van, early Van Morrison. And I really, that song, just this beautiful walking line. I mean, what we ended up with was hundreds and collectors, you know. But, sure. But it, but it had this, um, this incredible yearning and vulnerability, and it was personal, uh-huh. you know. And I really wanted to strive for that kind of, really grounded honesty about my own condition. And so there are mixed messages in Trey Arms around me. Some people have kind of gone, oh, well, it's really quite uh, physical and it's about sex and, you know, he's talking about, so how can it be love? Uh, well, why not? Right. And I remember back in the day thinking, actually, people have found controversy in that. Like, yeah. But it might have been because it was hunters and collectors doing it. And Maybe. that's the weird thing about hunters. Hunters did things that people didn't expect. You know, they'd, they'd form a view of the band and then along with a song would come along. And, and I played that game. I mean, I, you know, I thought that was kind of wor- worth the effort uh-huh. to actually ha- make people think, you know. Yeah. And I remember answering that question many times when, when that song came out. But then, see, I've now got another verse in it now where I talk about community and, mm. and uh, sh- shared values and, the idea of you can ride on my bus anytime, and it's look. There's a lot of. Yeah. I'm really aware of the collective will, like the collective will of humanity 
is a really important part of our history as a species. And yeah. I thought, I've got to slot that into throw runs around me somehow because I've got oh, all these beautiful. people going, you know, doing the candles, you know, doing the secret yes. sliders. Yes. Can, we, can we bring that in? You know, so yes. I've actually written another verse. So, so the, la- the latest version has a, the lyrics changed. Not the, okay. the opening verse is the same, but the second verse is different. Oh, I love that. I love that idea. I love it. Anyway. Okay. So, okay. One of our other listeners, William Rogan is Australian. When I told him that I was talking with you, he got pretty excited. And I, he had, he sent over a couple of questions. Number one, he wants to know which AFL team do you support? The Western Bulldogs. Do you know what that means? <laughs> no. I mean, I know it's a football. I know it's a soccer team. I know that. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. No, it's Western Bulldogs. It's AFL, Australian rules football. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I thought. His team is the Richmond Tigers. Yeah. And right. uh, so, and then he also wanted to know how you feel about Holy Grail being appropriated by every sport and sporting team in Australia. He says, I'm sure it's great for the mailbox money, but it really has been hijacked over. This morning from the strangest dream I was in the biggest army the world has ever seen We were marching as one on the road to the Holy Grail Started out seeking fortune and glory It's a short song but it's a hell of a story when you spend your lifetime trying to get your hands on the holy grail well have you heard about the great crusade we ran into millions and nobody got paid yeah we raised four corners of the globe for the holy grail I don't care. Really? I just don't care. I just think it's it just doesn't matter. Okay. You know? it's, yeah. It's the idea. It's so random. You know, uh-huh. it's just the idea of you that you might write a song that, for some reason, just resonates with a particular community because it's wildly misinterpreted. I just think that's kind of. I wouldn't say maybe miraculous is the wrong word, but it's definitely. It's got something very perverse and strange about it, and I re- I kind of revel in it, you know. Like really? people have said to me, well, because it's it's still you can still get up and play it, and however I want to play it, you know, like and I can do it really quietly. And the thing about it is, it's a really good song. Like it's just got this kind of strange, otherworldly feeling about it, and it it doesn't have a chorus, mm-hmm. <laughs> and it it's sort of. It describes this guy who's just travelling these enormous distances and he's he's in this army and he's travelling from one part of the world to another. It personalises this idea of human conflict in such a focused way that I don't care whether people misinterpret it because it's there, it's, you know, it's, it's in plain view. I mean, I get up and play it and I do it really quietly and it's incredibly sad. Really? You know? Uh-huh. And so... You know, the idea that footy teams, I mean, look, okay. there's so many things that I've done that have been misinterpreted. It's like, you know, I just it's just the price of you just stay in the game and you, yeah. it's a level of success 
eventually people are going to start saying things and reacting to you in a particular way that's just got nothing to do with reality and yeah. there isn't what you can do about it, you know. It's <laughs> when you talk about misinterpreting songs, I got to admit, whenever I hear that song, probably because of going back to this anthemic nature of so much of Hunter's music, I almost sometimes wonder if you're singing about yourselves. If this army that's traveling the four corners yeah. of the world looking for the Holy Grail is hunters and collectors. Well, it's, a, it's kind of like a letter. It is, is a it? letter to the man. And, and the thing is, I, I mean, I, I had this conversation with the drummer the other day about another song that I kind of wrote in that same way and he had another interview. You, were act, you said it was about blah, blah, blah. Well, I didn't actually. Hmm. I didn't say that. But it, it, it could potentially be about something else as well. Right. It's quite possible to write about two things at once, yeah. you know. And, in fact, I actually think it's like with acting, you have invisible, there's invisible work that goes on, the actor and the target. You, you, you have the front, the, 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 the thing you present, you have the opening line. I was standing in the shadows by the corner. Of the sun. You, you begin it and it's just like, okay, now, and then they suspend disbelief, move in and start listening. Now, where that audience member goes, that listener goes from there on, you've just got to weave a yarn to get them to the end and you've got to make them feel something, mm-hmm. right? Now, part of that feeling is something you might be having, mm-hmm. right? And when I wrote those lyrics, I really felt like it was an offering, mm-hmm. you know? I, mm-hmm. The band was struggling. There was a lot of internal division and argument yeah. and I just thought, well, why are we doing this, yeah. you know? And the, and I was reading this book at the night time, Jeanette Winterson, and she documents the story about this, that Napoleon's chef and Napoleon tries to make Moscow and everything goes horribly wrong, you know, and the, the, the army's just dying in the frozen snow and here's our little chef, you know, he's still cooking <laughs> Napoleon's chicken and he ends up escaping and he ends up in Italy for some reason. But, um, but <laughs> that's the song. But the wow. idea of a guy coming through that and... You know, and and his wounds are clean now. Yeah. He's 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 survived this incredible ordeal. Yeah, I just think that. I mean, I just hit on it. Like yeah. I could just there's all these voices around me, and people are going, oh, arguing about where the record was going. Yeah, and I just went, I'm reading this book, and I'm going, shit, this is really interesting. You know, like yeah. there's this guy is struggling, and I just I linked the things together in my mind at the time, and I just yeah. started writing the words. I did, I wrote them in the studio. You know. Wow. Um, okay, I got three more questions for you. Oh, One, <laughs> I, I'll be I'll be quick. One, right. when Crowded House, Midnight Oil, NXS are starting to break big in America, are you ever feeling jealous, bummed yeah. out that it's not happening for you? Yeah. Really? Oh yeah, went through all that. Yeah. Yeah. I was afraid yeah. of that. I wondered why. Well, because, I mean, yeah, exactly. And these bands, you have something, too, that if those bands are hooking over here, you should have, Australian or not, you should have been able to do something similar. And I wondered if that ever ate at you, um, that it never quite worked out. Maybe it's, like you said, because you didn't spend enough time in the U.S. I don't know. But it's a shame, whatever it was. Are you comfortable with that now? Yeah, I I understand why. Yeah, it is a shame. But... Oh, man. I mean, there are so many stories. I mean, I, I just think now people that do this for a living who, who, how many bands are there that have never seen the light of day? A really good bands who've toured well and effectively and yeah. just kind of never, never crossed the line, you know? 
yeah. it's such an old story, you know. It is. It is. And there are people who would regard me as very successful. And I am. You know, yeah. I'm successful. Yeah. You know, but the main, look, the, my main issue is staying on, on song, you know, literally like keeping my lyric, it's focusing on words and telling stories. And that's kind of it, really. You're a master. <laughs> it's one thing I can control. <laughs> You're a master at that. A master. Um, okay. I got to ask, Nick Seymour being your brother, you two don't seem very much alike other than looking similarly. You seem more like the alpha guy. You're the front man of the band. You're out there writing the songs. He's the he's content to be the side man. He's painting his paintings that become album covers. Yeah, yeah. How are you two alike? Are you are you I I hope you guys get along. Hope you're yeah, close. Yeah, yeah. I don't even know. He's pretty masculine. Oh, really? Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. You know, he's, he's a bit of a dark horse. Like he's he kind of has he's very artistic, you know, but he's Fuck, he's very competitive. Don't worry about that. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I mean, the thing is, I look at what Nick's achieved and I go, how he pulled that off, you know? Yeah. In that turmoil of that time in, in, in Melbourne music in the in the early 80s, and he ended up working with Neil Finn. I mean, it, it's pretty big remit, you know? I mean, Neil Finn's like a master writer. And, yes. you know, Nick's kind of right in there. And his bass playing is unique it's like it's essential yes to that very band. intuitive and he's he's really special bass player and a lot and super melodic and it's an integral part of that band's sound yeah and and that's why he's still there you know yeah. nick doesn't do i think that there are a lot of things about nick and i that are quite similar okay and we both are competitive and and we both have a very highly developed sense of humor we love irony uh-huh uh, I play, but I'm, he doesn't play sport. <laughs> Although he does surf, he does, he rides as stand up. Okay. Paddle, SUP, he rides an SUP, which, you know, and good luck. He's bloody good at it too. Okay, good. But no, that's, he doesn't kind of go into a lot of other stuff. Okay. Yeah, that is so interesting. So I'm, I mean, how would Christmas 1988 or 89 have been? when Crowded House has just broken and Hunters is still, you know, local legends, but not worldwide legends. Yeah, well, I, I, I struggle with that. Yeah. I look back on it now and I, I look, you know, I have such vivid memories about, you know, how much the endeavour there was for us yeah. and for me. You know, like I really tried. Yeah. I mean, the main thing for me is I hate the worst thought that I can have is that I didn't do my best, you know, yeah. and... Uh, that's pretty, and I and I, I was pretty confident that I did it. I I did as much as I possibly could, you know, to try and crack that market. But you know, I think when you the, you get older and you look back and you go, you see the bigger picture. I mean, everyone says that, but I mean, those guys, Neil made some very cool moves early on with that group, and you know, the, his management structure, and um, you know, they stayed in Los Angeles and, you know, they really crafted that record. I mean, they, 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 they set out right from the very beginning to try and be a commercial success in that market and, yeah, and they pulled it off. They did. And, but even then, like, my brother would come back to me and just tell me these hair-raising stories about, you know, things that were going on between the record company and the band and you just go, really? even at that level, oh. you know, it's, it's, it's really difficult. Yeah. And, you know, things can... Really small things can really unravel I a big, big plan, you know, can, I can founder over a very small 
misunderstanding. Yeah. You know? yeah, I believe it. So fascinating. Um, okay. One other thing. So, uh, you know, when you're a big music guy, like I am, when you're in the, when you're in the, uh, company of other music people, different topics come up, you know, best album of all time, best song of all time, best band or whatever. And whenever the topic of best live album comes up, I always have to kind of take a second because I always think to myself, okay, do you really want to know what the best live album ever is? Because if you want to know, I will tell you, and it's under one roof by hunters and collectors. If you're not ready for that conversation, you'd rather talk about Cheap Trick and The Who, we can talk about Cheap Trick and The Who, but if you want to get into the real shit, we're going to talk about Hunters and Collectors Under One Roof. That is my opinion. What significance does the Coogee Bay Hotel have for Hunters and Collectors? I should predicate my answer by saying I actually think that's the best album Hunters and Collectors made. I Well, I have a real soft spot for Fate because of the reason I mentioned earlier, but Under One Roof is... But but I you know you know in going back to what I said earlier on about how the band really wrestled with how to make itself sound powerful on record as because our live thing was so you know over the top yeah we did it with a live album in the end I mean that quest did. we did it with a live album and that we pulled it off finally we did and I actually think that that's that album is kind of the statement of the band it's the it's the defining statement i would say i mean with all of those different records we made over time i reckon that's the one that pretty much sums it up if you were gonna if i was gonna tell someone i you know what would be my best point of departure i'd say go and get that record i agree interesting you say that for me um slight tangent but for instance like i think if you were going to give someone one ramones album you would give them it's alive that to me is the best encapsulation of what makes the ramones so special and i kind of feel that way about under one roof if someone was to say what's hunters and collectors all about i would give them under one roof and i would say study this and you will see what the magic is you'll get it Anyway, what is the Coogee Bay Hotel or mo- whatever it is? Okay, it's a it, well, it's about to be pulled down now, but it's oh, a geez. big old sort of 1920s building right on the beach in Coogee Bay. It's it was called they had a club underneath that went right back into the guts of the hill called Selena's, and it had a really high stage. It was basically a pub, 
mm. but a very big one. Mm. And it was kind of like the 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 defining statement of that kind of pub culture in, in Sydney in the 80s and 90s, you know, community. It had a lot of community a, a connection and people would come there from all over the eastern suburbs and you'd just jam it out. It'd be like 3,500 people. Mm-hmm. And um, when we did that last tour, uh, you know, we recorded particular, you know, we, we targeted specific rooms and brought the gear in to do it. That was one of them. So there was one in Melbourne and I think there was one in Brisbane as well. But Selena's okay. was like that, the defining venue for the band when it okay. got to that level. Okay. Yeah, I've always wondered. Every time I play that CD and I hear that and I was like, uh, my mind just, I start fantasizing, what, what is the Coogee Bay Hotel? What must that be like? What must this room have felt like? I would love to have been in that room, you know? Yeah, yeah. I want to be yeah. there. You anyway. walk in the... Yeah, it had a big beer garden out the front. The beach was just straight over the road. There's a hill up one side. Like Sydney's very mountainous. There's lots of hills. There's a big beer garden out the front and a, and a sort of a big, a lot of French windows along the front. And you'd walk in just through this little doorway and then you just keep going, mm-hmm. you know. And then, you know, as and it got darker and then the, the lights turned to red and then suddenly yeah. the ceiling opened out and it was like you were walking into a big cave. Yes. Right. And there's mezzanines up either side and, you know, and, and the stage. And the stage was really high. It, it was quite high. And so kids would be, you know, like they'd be like that, you know, hands on. It was really odd. So you're looking down at your audience, which I always found a bit mm. weird. But Interesting. I, and I'd look at them and they'd be, people would be like, like you know, yeah. just right into it. And I'd go, I just, that was, you know, I knew people loved it. People yeah. really liked that gig. And. I don't know. I would have felt. I don't know how happy I would have been being down there. Well, well, that would be a dream gig for me. Uh, last question: You, in your diary entry, you said it, it seemed like you were okay with the Mormons. Were they good to you? Were they nice? Oh yeah, yeah. We were I, weird. I was, no, not at all. I, I, uh, I know. There's all that. See, I grew up in a religious family, and I understand the idea of. I'm not religious now, but I understand right. the idea of how religion can play that kind of role in your life. So I, it hit all the markers for me. The idea of that, that, that community migrating across America and the idea of having this belief that tied them, held them together, and it's a really powerful idea, you know. And I really loved that little cab driver at the end. You know, he had a little flower and he looked like he was in a cowboy hat and yeah. in that story and talking about how he couldn't get a, he couldn't get a, a passport because mm-hmm. he'd been homeschooled. Yeah, that's weird. I had never heard that before. Yeah, that's but he was weird. really trippy. You know, he's like, I can kind of get why the killers come from there. You know, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. they've kind of got this very well educated, like sure. a high level of intellectual attainment in that yeah. part of the world. There's a lot of very educated people there. And, yeah, and it's, it was not what I expected at all, and a lot of diversity. Mm-hmm. Like it was a very diverse place. Yeah, you know? more than people know. I'm less Mormon now than I was back in the day, but it warmed my heart to see that you had a positive experience there either way. Mark, if you can't tell, I love you a lot. And I think you're one of Australia's finest gifts to the world, if not music's gifts to the world. So thank you for being you, because I think you're wonderful. I'm so grateful for all the good stuff you've put in the world. Great. Thank you. That's great. Very, very much appreciate hearing that. All right. There you go. The great Mark Seymour. I love 
that guy and just about everything he's ever put out there. I want to close it out with another one of his solo songs. This is called Football Train. I don't know what a football train is, but it sounds incredible the way he sings about it. This is on one of his solo albums. It's under Mark Seymour and The Undertow, which if you want to look for streaming or buy CDs or whatever, everything is either Mark Seymour or Mark Seymour and The Undertow. This is on his album Mayday from, I think, 2015. So anyway... He's so good. And again, under one roof, if you need to start there and decide how you feel, you're going to love it and you're going to want everything else. Now, next week, we are talking to, uh, it's another producer episode. And if you ask me, the architects of rock and hard rock and even, you know, hair metal in the 80s are these are three people, Bob Rock, Ron Nevison, and the guy we have coming up next week. Those other, those first two have already been on the show, so we're completing the, the hair metal trifecta next week with our guest, the architect, if you ask me, of that sound. That's who's coming up next week. I probably gave it away. Huge thanks, as always, to the Yan the Man Makevich, my right-hand man, for everything. Thanks, buddy, for doing this with me. Guys, you can like our page. You can send us a message on uh, Facebook page, I should say. You can send us a message on there. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. This week, we have a book club bonus episode coming out that I really like as well. I'm very proud of this one, too. I think you're going to love it. So there's a lot going on. All right? Thanks, everybody. We love you.